Welcome. You have found us. This is the Riot Underground. This is the place where we get to meet the instigators that are changing the world with disruptive technologies. Excited today to have John Breitenbach in the virtual studio. John is with Real-Time Innovation, RTI. Uh, he is the Regional Field Application Engineering Manager here in the Eastern United States. John, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. For those who uh, are not familiar, maybe let's just start with you know, who, who is RTI? Give us the, the high-level overview. Yeah, so um, RTI is a company that's been around since the 90s. We're based in Silicon Valley. Uh, and basically, we are a company that focuses exclusively on communications, real-time communications for uh, smart machines. Uh, we're all about making intelligent systems work together as one. Um, so our, our markets tend to be things like uh, surgical robots and autonomous cars and aerospace and defense uh, and green energy, uh, just to name a few. That's a wonderful spectrum of, of different applications, and we'll, we'll dig into some of those here in a moment. But uh, before we do, uh, we always like to know who is personally in the studio with us. And as this is an audio-only broadcast, our listeners like to have a visualization. And so uh, I'll ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, if you had the opportunity to cast yourself in a future biopic about your journey, and uh, both at RTI and maybe outside RTI, uh, who would you like to cast you and why? Or, uh, well, I had who to, would you like to play you and why? Yeah, I had, to, I had to ask my kids this because I don't really watch much in the way of movies. Um, and they said that the only one that looks like he's broken his nose as many times as me is Owen Wilson. There you are, Owen Wilson. That's fantastic. A lo lot of range. Uh, maybe we'll get a little bit of, uh, little bit of comedy. Uh, maybe we'll pull the heartstrings a little bit today in the interview. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll find out where it goes. But uh, Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, great to have you uh, here on, on the program. Uh, you don't lot of, watch a lot of movies. So what do you spend your time with? Talk a little bit about maybe uh, some of what brought you into this interesting real-time communication space. Yeah, well, basically, I'm a, I'm a geek at heart. And, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by applying computers to, to real-world problems, right? Things that are cyber-physical systems, you know, somehow that computers interact with the real world. And, and I've been doing that since uh, since I very first started tinkering with electronics and software uh, in high school. Um, so I'm kind of in the dream job for me. Uh, you know, prior to this job, I spent um, 25, 30 years actually developing software full time for a range of different industries, um, medical devices, automation, um, building automation. I've worked on elevators, I've worked on artificial hearts, um, a, a really broad gamut. Um, and then I found RTI and uh, I've been here for about eight years now. And uh, it's such a fascinating place to work because our customers are working on so much cool stuff. So it's, it's really, it's a geek stream, really. Real time is two thirds of the company name. How consistent is that in these different markets you work in? Do, do people think of real time in, in different scales? Yeah, real time is always um, relative to your needs, right? Uh, I, I think one of the best explanations that I've heard of it, I, I've always defined it as, as sort of a coming out of a process control background as transparent to the process, right? If it's fast enough and it's transparent to the process, that's considered real time. And that's probably a, a more technically correct answer. But we had an admiral in the U.S. Navy give us an answer once uh, 
he stood up and he said, I don't know what real time is, but I can tell you what non-real time is. And that's when they shoot 25 things at you and you only shoot down 24. I, uh, I love that. Yeah. Real time means nothing is late, I guess, is maybe a, a way to paraphrase what he described, right? Nothing is yep. missed. Nothing is late. So very, very interesting. Um, ha- how different is it working on you know, government projects? You do a lot of, lot, lot of DOD and government kind of work versus pri- private sector projects. Uh, how would you characterize those kind of two big buckets? Um, well, it's kind of interesting. You know, the, the commercial stuff certainly moves faster. Um, you know, they, they look to, to beat a market in six months to a year, under two years. Uh, the military folks design stuff that's going to last for 50. Um, so it's a fundamentally different approach. Um, different funding models, of course, uh, you know, in, in the autonomous vehicle space that, that, we, that we work in a lot now, there's lots of venture capital. And, and uh, it's very different than, you know, sort of our defense customers. One, one thing that I do find that's interesting is because, you know, we have such a defense pedigree. We, we talk to commercial folks and they all say, you know, oh, we want our software to be as robust as military uh, software. And then we talk to the military folks. And of course, they think the grass is greener on the other side. They say, oh, we got to be agile like the commercial guys. We want to adopt their best practices. So it's, it's funny that they each look at each other um and and you know want to be more like the other one that, that's really fascinating how about from the point of like technology adoption do you see that uh one side or the other is more risk tolerant or risk averse or you know if you're building something for few, for 50 years for example uh it's risky to, to take something that's really advanced and new but if you take something that's old maybe you're 50 years it's already 10 years behind yeah it's um the markets that we tend to be in generally are risk adverse because they, they tend to put people's lives at risk. So certainly in the military, that's the case. Um, but our medical customers too, if you're making something like a surgical robot, it's really critical that you get it right. They don't take a whole lot of risks with that. And then of course there's regulatory oversight on those things so that, you know, there, there's guardrails on their development process. Um, same thing with avionics. Um, self-driving cars are kind of interesting because, there isn't a lot of regulatory background yet, right? The medical industry has been around for a long time. The, the FDA has a fairly well-defined path uh, for bringing a product to market. Same thing in avionics, but autonomous cars are very different. I mean, it's an environment where the technology is, is progressing so much more rapidly than the regulators can keep up with it. They're still trying to figure out how do we certify these things? Um, you know, what are our, our rules for putting them on the road? And uh, so you have, you know, some of those companies are being a little more aggressive than others. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that all washes out over the next five to 10 years. You know, we're, we're going through this really gray area now where we're testing these things on the road with human drivers that do wildly unpredictable things. Um, so it's kind of an interesting time to be watching that whole market. It's it's fascinating. In fact, I've, I uh, haven't shared this before, but I, my, my sister and I have a, a, a big bag of Reese's Pieces bet on our our own timing of when we think we're going to see predominantly uh, driverless vehicles on the roads and things. And I, I am more optimistic it's going to happen faster than, than she is. But, uh, you know, last time I was out in, in the Bay Area, for example, going up 101, I was amazed at just looking out the, the window at other drivers, how many drivers were sitting in the driver's seat, but not 
touching the wheel. You know, there's a lot of folks that are trusting the technology enough right now that they can put their their Teslas or whatever into autopilot mode and are just riding up and down the riding up and down the roads. Yeah, I, w- I was out in Las Vegas back in uh, was it November maybe for a trade show, a mining expo, um, which is another market that we're in, uh, and actually got a, a self driving Uber or a self driving Lyft. Um, yeah, I, I got three or four rides in it over the week, and it was kind of interesting because they actually had one of the engineers in, um, and I believe that was one of the companies that was running our software. So we had this great geek talk all the way down the boulevard in, in Las Vegas, and you know, pointing out all the different, uh, you know, uh, they had a real time screen with all the telemetry going on and identifying everything. So um, that was a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, as you're working in these industries, can you share, I'm not sure how many of your active projects you can actually talk about publicly, but can you share like a really interesting use case or, or, you know, machines that you wouldn't think would be talking to other machines? Like uh, what's something that's just kind of really out there that you've gotten to work on? Um, really out there. Uh, you know, the, the surgical robots are, are pretty crazy. Um, uh, just in terms of the fact that they can now, you know, get into your abdomen in a, in a hole the size of, of a quarter or a half dollar. And and through that one small portal, get fully, you know, two or three fully articulated instruments. You know, we're not talking sort of like straight stick, you know, laparoscopy, which which limits the procedures you can do. These things are fully enabled. And um, what's wild about them is that sometimes the controls look like, you know, the game controllers that my kids use, you know, and, and uh and it's literally that, you know, they have cameras on them, 3D cameras, and it's like flying through the human body. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Um, and, you know, for me personally, some of those are, are uh, you know, it's meaningful to work on those. My oldest son has suffered from kidney stones since he was about 18 years old. And, you know, historically, um, you know, that's involved, you know, maybe ultrasound or, or you know, uh, some really painful treatments. But, some of these surgical robots now have the ability to basically fly up into your kidney and blast out kidney stones with a laser. I mean, that's, that's going to be real in just a few years. And, um, you know, for, for me to imagine that, you know, my son's not going to have to go through that pain is, 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 uh, you know, it's a big deal. It's huge. And I, I guess it, it reminds us that maybe as we're going forward, we should be asking our, our surgeons, uh, before the procedure, you know, how, how far did you get in Call of Duty, and how, you know, how well did you do in the video <laughs> gaming uh, world before before you got your medical degree, right? Did you have any appendix cheat codes? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Fantastic. You know, I uh, you you mentioned shooting things down with lasers. I remember a number of years ago seeing a, a pretty cool video that your company produced uh, that was using lasers in an interesting manner in uh, fish farming, if I recall. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we gave a talk on that at, at All Things Open with uh, with Riot. Um, yeah, so commercial fish farms, um, one of the biggest problems that they have is that the salmon uh, can develop. They're basically in the open water, huge nets with, you know, thousands and thousands of fish. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, one of the biggest threats to that industry is actually sea lice, which is a, a parasite that can affix to the, the side of the salmon and, and make them sick. And one of the solutions uh, that the uh, company that we work with has come up with is basically it's a full IoT solution to this fish farm where they put sensors underwater and cameras and they're able to 
monitor the entire school of fish, look at their activity, measure the salinity of the water, the environmental conditions, um, and based on that, decide when and how much to feed. And then as they're feeding the fish and they're, they're sort of circling around where the food is, is being scattered, uh, they have cameras with um, uh, you know, image recognition on them and they can look at the fish spot the sea lice and then they have a laser underwater and they actually shoot the sea lice off the salmon with a laser. Um, it, it's pretty crazy to watch, um, but it, it allows them to basically uh, take care of the school of fish and, and, and eliminate this, this threat, which costs them a lot of money. So. That's fascinating. I mean, whether it's, you know, naval uh, air defense or it's shooting sea lice off a of salmon or surgical robots, like, uh, your day-to-day must be just incredible. How, how do you uh, stay on top of it all? Um, well, you just kind of go with the flow, but it is, uh, yeah, it, it can be all over the map. I mean, in the same day, we can be talking to a surgical robot company, uh, a company that makes, you know, a- autonomous mining vehicles that are as big as your house. Um, and the folks down at NASA Kennedy Space Center, we've actually got a big launch coming up, uh, I think the latter part of March, Um uh, with Artemis, uh, you know, which is part of the mission of going back to the moon. And, uh, you know, our, our software powers the launch control system um, or parts of it. Uh, so we're actually going to have one of, one of my guys is going to be there in the launch control room. I'm insanely jealous of him. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's great for him because he, too, was a fellow geek. He was a, a uh, he actually worked at NASA Space Camp when he was a teenager. And uh, so it's come full circle for him now. They're his customer, and he gets to go bounce around the launch control room. That's uh, that's incredible. Very very cool. As you uh, are involved in all these different kind of projects, w- w- what are some strategies that that you have to just kind of stay current? Like may- maybe the projects alone have them, but but folks are coming to you looking for that innovation, right? So so uh, talk about the innovation part of real time innovation. Yeah. So um, in, in terms of staying current, yes, our customers do drive us that way. It's, you know, they're working on such cool stuff. We, we see, you know, uh, exciting new technologies years before they, um, you know, become commercially available. Um, you know, our side of it is a very small corner of it, right? We really focus on the communications and um, we have a, a research department as well as a huge engineering department that are always, you know, pushing the boundaries of, of what we can do there. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the new markets that we're in, we just released a new product last year called Connect Anywhere, um, which is really focused on folks that want to do teleoperation over the wide area network. And this is a really common use case for autonomous vehicles because today folks are running at like level two autonomy, which is sort of your your Tesla autopilot range. In order for us to make the jump from level two to levels four and five, there's a lot of um, field testing that has to go on and the cars get stuck. They run into problems that they can't solve. And now you need some way to basically take that vehicle over, perhaps remotely, uh, and have a human get it around the obstacle and then throw the switch and put it back in auto mode. And um, so our Connects Anywhere product targets applications like that. Uh, it, it's really uh, unique in what it can do in terms of real-time communications across the wide area network. There's, there's nothing else, no other technologies I'm aware of that, that can do what Connects Anywhere does. Um, so that one's super exciting to me because I think that there's a whole world of applications that we, we haven't stumbled upon yet. 
um, because you know we're still a relatively small company. It's it's tough, but we have such interesting customers find us. Um, so we'll see where that one goes. That's wonderful. Uh, as you see these interesting you know technologies and, and you get to do interesting use cases and implementations, you know, if you were in, in a position to to place a bet, you know you had some some money you wanted to invest in in something new like. What emerging technology are you really excited about right now? I would say um, AI and machine learning. Uh, I, I think I, I think that is going to have a much more profound impact on our world than the computer revolution, than the internet, than the Internet of Things. Um, some of what's happening there is uh, again, it's it's just it's going to change the world in completely profound ways. Um, you know, for years, I told my kids, you know, don't get an algorithmic job because those are going to be replaced by computers and automation. Look for something that involves heuristics where you have to think and reason because uh, those jobs will be secure. I'm not sure those jobs are secure anymore. Um, I, I think we are rapidly approaching the convergence of increased compute power and maturity in AI and machine learning that is actually going to supersede how fast we as humans can think and reason. Um, and I, I don't know what that means for the world, but if I had to put a bet on something, that's what I would bet on. Yeah, fascinating. And I, and I think uh, we've already found our topic for the next time we have you on the podcast. That's a, a whole separate discussion <laughs> that, uh, that w we like to think about and talk about uh, every day because uh, you know, technology does disrupt jobs and industries, but it tends to always create new ones as well, which right. is fascinating. And so, um, but we'll, we'll table that for another day. Um, as we kind of reach the end of our, our time together here, I am interested because we work with a lot of startup companies that maybe uh, don't uh, you know, think about how would we partner with organizations like RTI and others. You have a role, you know, field application engineering is very much about this customer partner relationship. Just at a high level, talk about, you know, what is an FAE for folks that don't know that and and, you know, kind of what is that role in helping kind of both companies on either side of that equation to, to get a win? Yeah. So basically uh, what we as field applications engineers do is we try and help our customers understand, first of all, if our technology is a good fit for them. Right. Is, you know, we, we try and understand their problem space, what they're trying to do. Um, and sometimes we say, yeah, we're not a good fit. You're, you're better served by some other technology. Um, but if there is a fit, then it's, it's our job to basically help them get started, right? And um, explain some of the concepts um, of, of data centricity, uh, you know, uh, data centric communications, which is what our secret sauce is, if you will, um, and really understand how they can apply it to their system and help them get up and running and maybe do their proof of concept and maybe talk about some system architecture, some best practices, uh, those kind of things. And Whatever we can do to help them be successful, really. Are those relationships typically uh, at, at kind of the ideation stage of a project or are they more, hey, we've come to a certain point, we've hit a roadblock, now we need to help. Talk about when the engagement make, makes the most sense. Yeah, so at, at RTI, you know, we tend to, so, so we have a, just in the last year, we spun up actually a customer success uh, group within RTI because what we've realized is that we have these long arc um, relationships with our customers for years and years and years. And we get pulled in at various points. There, there's the upfront, the ideation part that you described, like how do we get going? 
And then they go through off and they do their proof of concept and they might need help, you know, six months in looking at their data model or something like that, or there's some big integration event. Um, and then at some point, a year, two years down the road, they might be going to market. Um, and depending on the market, if it's medical or something like that, you know, they might have regulatory issues and we might have to help them through that. Um, so it, it tends to be a very long relationship that we have with our customers. We tend to get be great friends with them. You know, it was really funny last year after um, late summer, we started getting back out uh, for the first time since COVID and, and visiting customers. And it, it was like seeing old friends. You know, I went up to Norfolk for a week and uh, everybody was like, oh gosh, yes, please come in. Let's go out. Let's get a beer. Like it's just, you know, friends that I hadn't seen in a couple of years, you know? Um, so that's the kind of relationships we try and develop with our customers. Um, you know, if we're doing our job right, that's basically what it should look like. Yeah, I think all business should be that way where, where possible. So really cool to see that you've developed that that type of a culture. Um, as we kind of wrap the program, I'm interested. We are reaching a point now where we're getting back together. We're meeting folks. We're, you know, uh, I don't know we'll ever say business as usual because everything always changes and, and uh, so on. But as, you know, we get past... Uh, the pandemic and other challenges of the recent past. What are you most excited about right now? Uh, most excited about, yeah, just hopefully the world starting to open up again um, and, and getting out and, and seeing people in person. Uh, you know, it, it's one thing to talk to one of our customers making, you know, a, a flying car. Uh, it's another thing to actually go there and sit in it, you know, and, and, you know, uh, see it in person. So um those things are great. I, I personally like going to some of the trade shows that we go to because they're just these crazy trade shows that are all about robotics or space or something. And there's just so much to see when you're there. Um, so a year and a half without that, you know, I, it, it, we just felt, I personally felt kind of lost. Um, so it's, it's been good to just get out yeah, and see people in live events. There's just a different energy to a live event than, than you know, a Zoom meeting. Yeah, it's fantastic. It, it helps us to remember that no matter how much we're able to help the machines talk to each other in real time and to, to do these incredible automations that makes our lives better, uh, there's still a, a great human element to it. So uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the program, John. It's been incredible. I can't wait to hear some of the other projects you're working on next time you're here. Uh, if there's a chance I can get an invitation to sit in that uh, flying car, I'd love to come along. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, thanks for, for being on the program. Thanks, Tom. Great talking to you. Hi, y'all. Caroline Griffin here, dropping in to say thanks for listening. And if you have any questions for Riot, send me a note. You may reach me at caroline at riot.org. This Riot Underground podcast is created and produced by Riot Studios with music by Scott Jackson. Riot is a nonprofit focused on economic development through the Internet of Things, or IoT. We produce events, conferences, and educational courses around the world. And we run an early-stage startup accelerator out of Riot Labs in Raleigh, North Carolina. Our nonprofit also operates a wireless test and certification facility under the Wireless Research Center brand. Learn how to engage by visiting us at riot.org.